if you would, to Genesis 37. 37. As we continue now, going verse by verse through these final chapters of the book of Genesis, learning about Joseph and his brothers. And our focus this morning is going to be uh, verses 5 through 11, uh, but let's begin reading in verse 1. So Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1. Again, this is the Word of God. So let's read it accordingly. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Friends, what is the doctrine of this text? What, what are these verses saying to us? Remember, Joseph was the first Savior of Israel, the, the first man that God used to save His people. Joseph was a shadow. His was a prophetic life pointing towards the ultimate Savior who was to come. What we find in this passage is that God revealed His plan to exalt Joseph before He brought it to pass. And how strange it must have seemed. The entire family, even Jacob and Leah, were going to come and bow down before Joseph? Right, Joseph, sure. Like, that's going to happen. And yet what God had revealed that He was going to do, God did. The book of Genesis, with this account, was given to the nation of Israel on their way into the promised land. And it was meant to teach them this lesson. When God says He's going to do something, God does it. Most importantly, this passage prepared the people of Israel for the day when prophets would come on the scene 
And these prophets would declare that the Messiah they've been waiting for was going to be born. And he would be exalted as Lord over all. And this passage was meant to teach Israel to believe what God was saying. Not to scoff at the prophets the way Joseph's brothers scoffed at him. But to believe their word. Though they had waited for so long. Though it seemed so ridiculous to dream that it could happen. Yet to hold on to God's word that a Messiah was coming who would be exalted above all the others. Think about the message of the apostles in the New Testament. The apostles, we hear them preaching and they say, Friends, Jesus of Nazareth, that simple carpenter's son, that man who had no place to lay his head, the one who hung out with the sick and with the sinful, that man, he's now Lord of all. And one day, every one of us is going to stand before Him and bow to Him. And you can maybe think of some of the people in the crowd saying, yeah, sure, like that's going to happen. But this passage teaches us that if God promises it, it will be fulfilled. That just as Joseph's brothers scoffed at kneeling before Him one day, we ought not to scoff at the idea that we will one day kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not simply call Jesus a great moral teacher. Do not simply view Jesus as an interesting but dead historical figure. For just as Joseph's brothers later found themselves bowing before their brother, so you and I should take God at His word and know that there will be a day when we will all stand before Christ and bow before Him. And the question for us is this, will we bow out of happy submission with hearts full of love for Jesus? Or will we bow because we have been forced to bow just before we in our arrogant hearts are cast away from His presence forever? How silly, how how arrogant this sounded to Joseph's brothers. How crazy the idea that even mom and dad would come and bow before Joseph. But what God promised, He brought to pass, and so shall it be again. And I believe that's the main reason that this passage is included in our Bibles. Now our study of this passage this morning will focus on three headings. So here's our outline, three headings. Joseph's exaltation revealed, the response of the brothers, and the response of Jacob. So Joseph's exaltation revealed, the response of the brothers, and the response of Jacob. So, Joseph's exaltation revealed. It's through these two dreams, in verses 5-11, through that God reveals His purpose to exalt Joseph. As we read this, we begin to have great expectations concerning what God is going to do in Joseph's life. And it's important for us to understand why Joseph and his family took these dreams so seriously. Joseph, by the way, was not the only one in his family to see these dreams as significant. We know that Joseph's brothers took these dreams seriously because we're told that it led them to be jealous of Joseph. And we know that Joseph's father took the dreams seriously because we're told that he kept the saying of Joseph in his mind. Not a single one in the family said, Oh, Joseph, it's just a dream. 
Forget about it. Now, why? Isn't that maybe what we would have said? I mean, all of us have had strange dreams at some point or another. Some of us maybe have had had some particularly vivid dreams at some point or another in our lives. And we wake up and we think about it. And our typical response is, well, it was just a dream. It doesn't mean anything. But four reasons helps us understand why this family believed that these dreams were a word from God. First, there was the culture in which they lived. It was commonly assumed among the pagans of the ancient Near East that the gods communicated to people through dreams. We have plenty of evidence from Mesopotamia, from ancient Egypt, and elsewhere to show that These ancient peoples took dreams very seriously, and in a few weeks we're going to look at those in even more detail. But if the pagans believed that their gods spoke to them through dreams, it's not at all hard to see why uh, Jacob and his family would have understood Joseph's dreams as perhaps coming from the one true God. And of course they were right. His dreams were coming as a word from the one true God. Second, Dreams had already played a significant role in the life of this family. It was through a dream that God had instructed the man Abimelech to set their great-grandmother Sarah free to return her to her husband Abraham. Had God not spoken through a dream to Abimelech, Jacob and his family would not even exist at this point. As a young man, Jacob himself had been given a dream by God He was on his way to to visit his uncle Laban when uh, God spoke to him through a dream. In fact, turn back to Genesis 28 with me, uh, very briefly. Genesis 28. Because it's not hard to see why Joseph and this family took his dream seriously when his dad had had a dream that played such a significant role in his life. Uh, Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, The Lord stood above it. Just stop there. Here's Jacob lying on the ground with a stone for his pillow. And he has a dream like no other he's ever had before. He sees a stairway to heaven, a a stairway connecting heaven and earth. Um, What Jacob saw could have been something like a ladder. uh, But most Hebrew scholars tell us that it was probably more like a a flight of steps going up into heaven. And and up and down these steps were angels ascending and descending. And it's as if Jacob was being allowed to see something that is normally invisible. Namely, the reality that God has angels who are constantly about this world accomplishing the Father's will. The Lord, we're told, is at the top of these steps and these angels are going from Him and returning to Him as they accomplish His purpose for them in this earth. And so it's as if God was saying to Jacob, Jacob, 
you've been living in a very narrow-minded world. You've been living for yourself, concerned about yourself, seeking to get things you wanted for yourself, even if it meant wicked means of accomplishing that. But Jacob, you have failed to see that there is so much more happening in this world. I am at work. My angels are at work. There are big and bigger things being accomplished that are grander than you. Wake up to reality, Jacob. Wake up to reality that there is more to this life than just what you can see with your eyes. Friends, this moment, this dream, was a pivotal moment in the life of Jacob. It led to his conversion. God used this dream to save Jacob's soul. This was the first time we find Jacob humbled before a holy God. And in the final verses of this chapter, we find Jacob making a vow to God that he will depend on God for protection and care and that the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, will be his God. And so you see, dreams had already been very important in Jacob's family. It would have been weird for them to dismiss Joseph's now. For them to say, oh no, it was just a dream. No, because of their family history, they took note of these dreams that Joseph had. You can turn back to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. The third reason that these men suspected that these dreams were truly a prophetic word from God was that they were two dreams and not one. And that's interesting because that's how it's going to be throughout the rest of the book of Genesis concerning Joseph's life. We're going to see more dreams, more words from God coming in dreams, and they always are coming in pairs. Now, the two dreams will always be a little different from each other, and the two dreams will always be prophesying the same reality. And so, if he just had one dream, maybe they could have dismissed it. But the fact that he had two dreams, both with the same message, certainly caught their attention. And then fourth and finally, I think they had good reason to accept these dreams as a prophetic word from God because of the content of these dreams. Um, some dreams we have are just dreams, and you try and interpret them, right? I, I was flying with my Superman cape, and um, actually my, my mom had the strangest dream this week about me flying down to visit them, and they refused to come to the airport to get me, so the airplane dropped me off in the bay, and I had to swim with my... You, know, you try and interpret that, and you say, what's going on there? And it's hard to... This dream was not hard to interpret. It was very clear that there was a message here that was being brought to this family. The first dream, Joseph and his brothers are bundling stalks of grain into sheaves. Joseph's sheaf stands up. The brothers' sheaves gather around his and bow down. Not hard to interpret. Joseph, you're going to be exalted above your brothers. Second dream, Joseph sees himself surrounded by 11 stars, the moon, and the sun. And all of them bow down to him. Clearly the sun represents his father Jacob. Clearly the moon represents his mother, which at this point is his stepmother Leah. And the 11 stars represent his 11 brothers. And the message is the same. He's going to be exalted over them. And so included in both dreams is this idea of God elevating this younger son. Remember, Joseph is the 11th son in this family. 
And yet he's going to be lifted up above the rest. And friends, if there was ever a family in the world that would pay attention to that message, it was this family. Remember, this is the family that God had promised that the Messiah would come from them. You have that promise way back in Genesis 3.15. A serpent slayer is coming who's going to set all things right. And we learned in Genesis 12 that that Messiah, that one to come, he's going to come through the line of Abraham. And Abraham has two sons, and Ishmael is first. And we think, oh, well, the Messiah would probably come from Ishmael. But no. God chose to exalt Isaac, the younger son, over the older to be the one through whom the Messiah would come. So, okay, the Messiah is going to come through Isaac. Isaac has two sons. Esau is born first, then Jacob. And everything in their culture would have said, oh, Esau is going to be the honored son. But what did God do? He elevated the younger son over the older. And so now Joseph has a dream about him as the 11th son being exalted above the others. Do you think they could just dismiss that? Well, certainly with this family, that resonated. That caught their attention. This family knew better than any other how God often chose to exalt younger sons over older sons. And that's what this dream was about. Now, what should I, what, I and you, what should you and I think about this? Uh, in, in particular, should we view our own dreams this way? Are our own dreams significant? Does God communicate to us through dreams? Well, I'm not going to answer that today. We've answered it before. But in just a few weeks, we're going to be dealing with dreams again. And we're going to spend more time talking about uh, the way we as Christians should think about dreams today. So just hold on to that. If that's what's in your mind, if that's what you're wondering about, hold on to those questions. We're going to deal with those in just a few weeks. For now... All we need to say is that Joseph, his brothers, and his father are correct in believing that these dreams are a word to them from God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Joseph's motivations were in sharing these dreams. Um, When we have dreams, especially very vivid dreams or perhaps very weird dreams sometimes, we often want to share them with others. We often want to say, hey, you're not going to believe this dream I had, right? And, and, and we go and we, we tell somebody about this dream we've had. And so Joseph may very well have naively shared the first dream with his brothers, just assuming that they would find it as interesting as, as he did. Brothers, I've had a dream. Listen to this dream that I've had. It, it was fresh in his mind. It was on his heart. And he wanted to share with his brothers this dream he had. If he did that, I don't think he was being very sensitive to how his dream would affect his brothers. Remember, he's already wearing the coat that declares to all that he, the 11th son, now has authority and priority over his older brothers. And so you would think he would have realized how hard it would be for his brothers to swallow this message. Now, to bring them that first dream shows some, at least some insensitivity on his part. But what do we do with the fact that even after they respond harshly, Even after they say, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? He brings the second dream to them again. 
I think at this point, so far in our study of Joseph, we've seen that his brothers are just wicked, wicked men. But so far in our study of Joseph, Joseph has been a real example of righteousness and godliness. But if we're going to find fault with Joseph, I think we might can find it here. That especially the second time, after he knew how the first dream had already affected his brothers, hurt them, tempted them towards even greater hatred towards him, he still goes with the second dream and brings it to their attention. Um, Maybe Joseph saw the second dream as confirmation of the first, and the brothers had asked, are you indeed to reign over us? And so maybe Joseph is now coming to answer their question with the second dream. Yes, it it does appear like I am going to reign over you. Um, Joseph had received a word from God. That's an exciting thing to happen in someone's life. But I cannot help but think that this is still perhaps a real blemish on Joseph's character. He's a godly man. He's a godly teenager. We're going to see more of Joseph's faithfulness in the coming pages. But at this point, I think we can charge Joseph with with provoking his brothers to anger. What's interesting is that the second time he shares, when he shares the second dream, he doesn't just take it to his brothers. He takes it to his brothers in the presence of his father. And it's possible that Joseph knew how much his father loved him and how he was even preferred by his father over his brothers. Maybe he expected his father to defend him. Maybe he expected his fathers to say to the other brothers, do you hear what God is saying? Now you need to treat Joseph with more honor. You need to treat Joseph with more respect from here on out. But that's not how Jacob responded. So let's look at Jacob's response. Let's look at Jacob's response. We see Jacob's response in verses 10 through 11. Look with me at verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his fathers rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. His father rebukes Joseph, and notice why. I don't think he had any problem with the idea of his brothers bowing down, of Joseph's brothers bowing down to Joseph. In fact, Jacob had given Joseph the status of the firstborn son. He had given Joseph the coat of many colors. He had already established that Joseph would receive the chief inheritance. So I don't think Jacob was upset that Joseph's brothers were going to bow before him. Rather, Jacob's upset that God is saying that he's going to bow before him. This begins to to hit home that now he and Leah will one day bow before Joseph. And this, in Jacob's mind and heart, is too much. It almost sounds to him as if Joseph has gotten a little full of himself. Jacob might have thought, "Uh uh-oh, I've I've spoiled this child a bit too much. And uh, I, I put him above the others. Now he thinks he's above me. The problem is, Joseph didn't create the dream. Joseph did not imagine this dream. He really did receive it from God. Joseph was communicating, probably insensitively, but he was communicating a message he had received from the Lord. And therefore, these were not the words of a spoiled child. These were not the words of someone with visions of grandeur. These were the words of a a godly teenage boy who had received an astounding prophetic dream from God. 
And Jacob knew that, and that's why we read at the end of these verses that, that even after Jacob rebuked Joseph, he kept the sayings in mind. He, he rebuked Joseph in his anger, but in his heart he knew that there was really something to what his son had shared. He kept it in mind. Reminds us of Mary in Luke chapter 2, when the shepherds come and see the newborn baby Jesus. And we're told that the shepherds shared with Mary and Joseph what the angels had proclaimed to them, that a Savior had been born who is Christ the Lord. And we're told that as they told these things to Mary, she treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. And that's very similar to the language used here of of Jacob. He, He took note of what his son had shared. He kept it in mind for a long time. However, um, whatever great expectations Jacob might have had for Joseph after hearing these dreams, they were shot all to pieces when, at the end of this chapter, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, come to him with a bloodied cloak and declare that his son is dead. And so in, by the end of Genesis 37, at least in Jacob's mind, there's no hope of these dreams ever being proven true at all. Of course, you and I know the rest of the story. Let's look at Joseph's brother's response. Finally, Joseph's brother's response. A little more carefully, because here's where we have some real application for us, I think. We've already mentioned how this episode fueled their hatred of Joseph. Right? And we spoke at length about the brothers' hatred of Joseph last Sunday. But verse 11, verse 11 reveals what was underneath their hatred. Look at those first words of verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him. Friends, hatred does not come out of nowhere. Hatred is almost always rooted in something else. And many times, hatred is rooted in jealousy. Joseph had his father's approval. What children do not long for their father's approval? Joseph seemed to care about righteousness. Joseph walked with God, and therefore he had a connection with his father that the other sons in their wickedness and unbelief did not have. And this connection that Joseph had with his father did not stir the other brothers up to repentance. No, it stirred them up to hateful jealousy. They longed for what Joseph had. Joseph received the expensive robe. Joseph received the place of superiority among the brothers. Joseph was made the chief heir. His brothers were now burning in envy. And now who is it that has these prophetic dreams about being elevated above the rest? Of course, it had to be Joseph. Probably thinking, you know, if if Naphtali had had this dream, or Asher had had these dreams, or Simeon had had these dreams, they could handle that. But no, it had to be Joseph. Joseph. And they continued to be jealous. One evidence that they were jealous of Joseph's dreams is what we find in verse 19. If you look over at verse 19, we're going to study that next week. But there we have Joseph appearing on the horizon, Joseph coming to check in on his brothers on behalf of their father. And the brothers say, here comes this dreamer. And in the Hebrew, they use the word Baal, the name of the pagan god Baal. 
It's the Hebrew word that, that means Lord. In other words, what they're saying in dripping sarcasm, they basically say, here comes the Lord of the dreams. That's what they call him. They look over the horizon. Here comes their brother to check in on them on behalf of their father. And they say, here comes that Lord of the dreams. And this reveals that even at that point, they were still ruminating over Joseph's dreams, that in their jealousy, they resented Joseph because he had received these dreams. Well, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, jealousy is a sin, and it is never to be treated lightly by us. Unbelievers will experience the wrath of God in hell because of jealousy. Jesus bore God's righteous anger on the cross because of his people's sin of jealousy. Temptations to jealousy abound in our lives. We can be jealous of our siblings. We can be jealous of our friends. We can be jealous of our neighbors. We can be jealous of our co-workers. We might be envious of their, of their wealth, of their positions. We might be envious of their accomplishments, envious of their talents. And dear friends, jealousy is not just a sin that unbelievers are tempted to. All of us are tempted to jealousy. No one is immune from envy. Even preachers are tempted to this. Paul said in Philippians 1.15, some preach Christ out of envy. Right? In other words, there are some men who stand and preach the gospel not out of happy obedience to God, not out of love for others, but out of a desire to have what somebody else has. Mount Hermon, we must be on guard because the sin of jealousy can wreak havoc in our families, in our church, in our relationships. The New Testament makes clear that when Christians live in jealousy, they are living out of step with their faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.20 says that jealousy is a work of the flesh, not a fruit of the Spirit. And we are to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. In fact, in Galatians 5.26, just a few verses later, Paul specifically warns the Galatian Christians not to envy one another because it will bring damage to their church. In local churches, you often have very poor people and very wealthy people coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In the church in Corinth, there were slave masters and slaves coming together in the local church. Can you imagine the temptations that were there that many must have felt as some saw the luxuries of their brothers and sisters while they themselves were struggling through life? And have you ever felt this way? Yet the Apostle Paul made clear to the Corinthian church that jealousy is, among church members is a sign of real spiritual immaturity. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, because you were not ready for it. And you, even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving in a human way? So jealousy is a sign of real spiritual sickness, 
something to be dealt with immediately. Fundamentally, all jealousy is a sin against God. It doesn't matter who you're jealous of. The sin is against God. Because jealousy is a refusal to submit to God's sovereign will and purpose for your life. God has blessed this person in some way that He has not blessed me. And jealousy is me kicking against God's will. It is my refusal to trust that God knows what He is doing. It is my refusal to trust that God knows what is best for me. Jealousy is the acting out of a heart that will not be content. And in that way, jealousy is antithetical to true faith. True faith looks to Christ and rests in Him alone. We believe that through Jesus, everything necessary to make us right with God has been done. True faith looks to Jesus' promises in the Bible. That no matter what, Jesus is always with us. Jesus is caring for us as a good shepherd cares for his sheep. Nothing comes into our lives unless Jesus, as the great physician, deems it good for our souls. Jesus withholds no good thing from us that we need. Only things that might look good to us, but he knows that they would do us harm. And so true faith loves Christ, trusts Christ's wisdom, believes He is in control, that He knows what He is doing, and therefore true faith lives in peace, lives in contentment, lives in resting in what Christ has done and is doing in us. Friends, this is the cure for jealousy. To look afresh to Jesus Christ to remind yourself of who He is and what He has promised, and to trust that He knows what He's doing. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Church, don't miss that phrase. Joy and peace in believing. Paul is praying that God will give the Roman Christians an abundance of joy, an abundance of peace. But where are they going to find that abundance of joy? Where are they going to find that abundance of peace? It is in believing. It is in faith. It is in looking to Christ, resting in Christ. Father, you may be blessing that person in that way. You may be blessing that person in that way. But I will be content because I know that my Savior is in control when He's caring for me. I have all that I need. Getting what so-and-so has that we wish we had will not bring us peace. As strange as it may seem to us, winning a hundred million dollars in the lottery still would not bring you true, lasting peace. Having so-and-so's position, having the fame that so-and-so has, having the talents that so-and-so has, these are not the key to true contentment. So we should put aside jealousy. We should repent of refusing to submit to God's will to our lives. We should look to Christ and find peace in Him. And if we don't, church, if we don't, the results can be disastrous. Jealousy is one of those sins that often leads to other very worse sins. For example, just listen to James 3. Verses 14 through 16. Listen to what he says. 
If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Don't miss that. He calls jealousy. The spirit of jealousy he calls demonic. And then he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Every vile practice when jealousy is at play. This is is what we see in the story of Joseph. Jealousy leading to a family full of disorder and every vile practice, including cold-blooded attempted murder. Those words, every vile practice, mean that if we let jealousy run loose in our hearts, there is no limit to what we might eventually do. Sins you once thought, I could never do something like that. I could never commit a sin like that. Jealousy will lead you to commit sins like that. The Bible illustrates this over and over again. We see it in the life of Joseph. We see it in the life of Jesus. We're in Mark 15.10. We're told that Pontius Pilate perceived that it was envy. It was jealousy that moved the religious leaders to bring Christ to his death was true for Jesus' apostles. In Acts 5, we find Peter and the other apostles preaching the gospel. And the apostles are doing all of these signs and wonders. We're told that people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. They were bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And the apostles healed them. And then we read this, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy... They arrested the apostles and put them in prison. The apostles healed sick people and were arrested and put in prison. Why? Jealousy. We could go on and on through the book of Acts. I actually have several examples here, but we won't, we won't take the time to read them. But over and over and over again in the book of Acts, the apostles come to a new city, they heal people, they preach the gospel, and we're specifically told that it was jealousy, it was envy among others in the town that led them to either arrest them, stone them, or kick them out of the city. Jealousy leads to worse sins. And so we must not let it have a foothold in our hearts. Jealousy seldom stays in the heart. If you do not quench it with contentment in Jesus Christ, it will turn into actions that hurt other people. Jealousy is a vile sin that births viler sins. So repent of it quickly and guard your heart against it. All right. We've been warned, haven't we? All right. Let's close with a reminder of what this is really all about. That just as God revealed beforehand that Joseph's parents and brothers would one day bow before him, so God has revealed to you that one day you will bow before the ultimate son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And you now have a choice. Every one of you in this room have a choice just like Joseph's brothers did. You can either hate this truth that one day you will bow before Jesus, You can resist this truth. You can choose not to submit yourself to Christ until the day that He forces you to submit to Him. The day He sentences you to hell. You can do that. You can fight. You can resist. You can rebel. I don't want to bow to Jesus. 
where you can humbly choose even now to bow before him, seeing that he is worthy of your love and allegiance. Jesus is a good king, one who was willing to die for the good of his people. Jesus will guide you down good paths if you will follow him. Dear friends, are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you submitting to him even now? Is he the Lord, the Savior, the treasure of your soul? Church, trust him, follow him, submit to him now, and it will be your joy to bow the knee before him on the last day. Let's pray.